today, uh, we're going to start off in Mark. We're continuing our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study through the book of Mark. And this is just such humbling material to read. We're going to start in verse 33. Chapter 15, Mark. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that, he cried out like this and breathed his last. He said, truly this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less and of Joseph and Salome who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Father in heaven, today we are reading, studying, meditating, on the death of your son. A sacrifice from above that gives us the possibility of not just life, but abundant life. Help us understand. Father, we know that you're everywhere. We know that you are, as the Bible teaches us, omnipresent. You're present everywhere. When your people gather together with your word, you are here in a very special way. So please speak to us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. For those who have studied history, there is a time period between 456 and 1473 A.D. It's called the Middle Ages. It's also been referred to by historians as the Dark Ages. Why? Well, for several reasons. One was that it was the fall of the greatest empire to this point the world had ever seen. It was the fall of Rome. The city was sacked. Barbarian tribes moved in, and life as they know it had ended. The language that they took pride in cultivating and communicating in, primarily Greek and Latin, was to fall out of use. The cultural practices they worked so hard to establish would go by the wayside. On top of that, starting in 1300 A.D., there was what is called a miniature ice age, where the temperatures cooled for a reason scientists still can't necessarily discern. Now, because of that, what happened was they were unable to grow crops. And because of that, there was a famine. And on top of that, at this time, 
science and medicine not flourishing because people are worried about what they're going to eat. But on top of that, in 1347 was the Black Plague, affecting about 20 million. It was a dark time, the Dark Ages. Those living in Europe thought it was the end of the world at that. Now, as we're looking at the book of Judges on Wednesday night, what we see is this. We can see dark times fall on a culture. We see that in the book of Judges, where every man is doing what is right in his own eyes, and there's no final authority. But we can also see this with individuals, people that have fallen upon dark times. Ask a man named Job. If you've ever studied his story in chapter 1 for a reason that is never made known to Job, it says that his servants were raided and killed. And on top of that, before he could catch his breath, he gets a message saying, well, not only were your servants killed, fire came and destroyed your sheep and more servants were killed. And on top of that, they came and they took your camels and killed your servants. And on top of that, your sons and daughters were in a house partying and the wind came, blew down on the house, and they're all dead also dark moment in Job's life. But perhaps you've been on the in those dark moments where it seems like you can't necessarily catch your breath. In those dark moments that come with living in a fallen world, it's the loss of a loved one, and then it is a relationship that has been crushed, and then it's your finances depleted. And there are just these moments in your life, and sometimes they all come rushing in at once, and this is a very dark time in somebody's life. And so today what we do is we study the darkest moment in human history. The darkest moment in human history is when mankind puts its creator on a cross. But it's because of that dark moment in human history that we have light. And maybe you've noticed this in your own life. How many of you have learned some of life's greatest lessons during dark periods, during dark moments? Isn't that a great teaching moment, right? Because what happens is that our senses are heightened. Okay, it's dark, and we can't necessarily see a way out. So what's happening is we're listening more. We're trying to see better. All right, our other senses are heightened. And so our hope is that today, as we study the darkest moment in human history, the hope is is that our ears are open uh, for this message that we're calling what we heard in the dark, what we hear in the dark. What we hear in the dark. So as we study this passage today, um, we're going to start with verse 33. And it says here, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now stop there for a moment. This is believed to have been between 9 a.m., somewhere around between 9 a.m. and 12 p.m. All right? And so there's a three-hour window here where it wasn't usually dark. But now Darkness has come upon the land, and here's why. Because the Creator, who spoke all things out of nothing, He can make it dark when it's supposed to be light, and He can make it light when it's supposed to be dark. God can do that. And so, during this moment, what we see is a real physical darkness. Now, physical darkness is a part of God's design. And we can see this in so many ways. Everybody do something right now, and just for a moment. This is not going to be difficult. You ready? Shut your eyes. Open them up. Boom! Wow! Okay, that was incredible, right? Okay, so there's the darkness, and then when we open up our eyes, there's light. All right? And so when we go to sleep at night, all right, we wake up in the morning, the sun comes up, all right, it's a new day, right? And so that the way that things have been created physical darkness, all right? There is a reason for this, that the way that things have been created, there is physical darkness. We see this at nighttime, and then the sun comes up, so in creation, when we close our eyes, when we open them up, when we go to bed at night, when we wake up in the morning, when there's a power outage. How many of you, when there's a power outage, are like, man, I wish the lights would come back on. wish the electricity would come back on, right? So this is like this from the very beginning, okay? In the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, the first 10 words, Genesis... One one says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Darkness 
hovered over the face of the deep. And God said, what? Let there be light. The first words that are spoken, God says, let there be light. Well, the first thing that we have to do when you go to work is what? Put the coffee maker on. No. <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's true. Uh, <laughs> the first thing you do when you walk into work is you have to put the lights on. All right, in order to see what you're doing, all right, if you're reading something, it helps to have the lights up, right? So if we're going to get work accomplished, and if it's going to be meaningful work, it usually helps. I mean, of course, there's work that, that uh, is done in the dark, but it's helpful to have the lights on when we're working, and it's been designed like that. And this dark light dynamic is throughout the Bible. Now think of this. In the one gospel that's different than the other three, so you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when John starts out his gospel, uh, let me just read it for you because it, it sounds very much like Genesis, where Genesis says, in the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. Well, John writes it like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the what? Light of men. And the light does what? It shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So here now what we begin to see is not only is there that physical darkness that we see in the very beginning, but it's always had a spiritual connotation. It's always had a spiritual implication. All right, because when you think of darkness, perhaps you think in those times of your life where they've been hopeless. Or it feels like you've been in a cave, and, and what, you, what you see is that there's no light at the end of the tunnel. And then Jesus came. And what did they do? The darkness could not comprehend it. And because the darkness could not comprehend it, what they tried to do was they tried to destroy it. Right? They tried to extinguish it. Now, it's because of that, what is the lesson for us when we see this dark moment in the first verse? During the dark moment, if we're watching it, here's what we close our eyes and we hear. We hear that because of this dark moment, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Because of the darkest moment in human history, if not for the darkest moment in human history, there is not a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, here's why we have light. You ready for it? Because in the darkest moment, when mankind was rejecting God, in that same moment, listen, God was choosing man. Isn't that crazy? And that's why you have a reversal there. That's why no matter how dark your circumstance, no matter what you're going through, it's like when you look at this, we do not mourn, we do not grieve as those that do not have hope. Though Jesus stands at the grave of his friend Lazarus and he weeps, he resurrects him a, a couple of moments later. He brings resurrection. And so when we think of these dark moments, what we know is this. It's just like we like to sing and celebrate in that song. The sun comes up. It's a new day dawning. It's time to sing your song again. We still have reason to sing in the dark moments because of this. A few things that you need to know about dark moments. Just real quick before we move on to our next point. One is that darkness, dark moments are inevitable in a fallen world. Inevitable. In a world that is separated from God, dark moments, they're unavoidable. They're going to happen. But the second thing is this. Dark moments create a longing for the light. I know I've told this story in here more than once trying not to wake the wife and children up, and trying to go to the bathroom at night. And Hannah had left one of her little, little type trucks in the bathroom. And as I am going to the bathroom, trying to make sure I don't wake anybody up, all right, I slip on the little type truck. I go forward, throat first, into the toilet bowl tank. All right, and I'm sitting there, oh! All right, so there's a bang, there's a crash, there's a yelling and screaming, and so everybody wakes up anyway. All right, when there's darkness, it creates a longing for the light. Somebody, please, for the love of God, put the lights on, right? 
So the first thing is that dark moments are inevitable in the fallen world. The second thing is that dark moments create a longing for the light. But here's the thing for the Christian. Dark moments are great opportunities. If Matthew 5.16 tells us to let our light shine before man, God has put our his light in you so that you can shine in the dark, so that people can see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Have you ever thought of this? That, some, that for someone, when you're living out Jesus in the workplace, or in school, or wherever it is that you are, have you ever thought that God might use you to show someone the light? Isn't that humbling? Isn't that crazy? Oh, there's a lot of things that we can learn in the dark, but here's the other thing. The dark moments will ultimately come to an end. Dark moments are ultimately coming to an end because there's a longing in your heart for something better, something different that only God can satisfy. But sometimes in order to get us there, he's got to turn the lights out for a moment. Ask a man named Saul of Tarsus, who in Acts 3, and you don't necessarily have to turn there with me, Acts 9, I'm sorry. Acts 9, verse 3, as Saul of Tarsus was going uh, acting like a terrorist on the road to destroy the Christians, watch what happens. As he journeyed, chapter 9, verse 3, He came near Damascus. Notice this. Notice what I do. I just noticed that. You don't have to turn there, but then I repeat the passage several times so that you can go there if you want. Anyway, as he he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, then fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go to the city, and you'll be told what to do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice but seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And there he was, three days without sight. What does God do to get his attention? He says, listen, you're done persecuting my church. Lights out. You work for me now. We're finished. Yeah, and that's, that deserves at least a bark and possibly an amen. Yeah, you know, it's like lights out. All right? Lights out. I've got your full attention. Because now you who are in control of everything, now all of a sudden you're being led in the dark uh, and you can't see until I say you have sight. And now... I've got your attention. Has it been a dark moment in anybody, in anybody's life that has been used by God to get your attention? All right, so there's a lot that we can hear in the dark, right? You're in a dark situation. One place that you can start always is at the cross. You start at the cross. Doesn't it blow your mind? Bleeding, bruised, struggling to breathe. Your Savior is hanging on it, saying, I love you like this. Alone. Verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi. Lama Sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Stop right there. You see it? As he's hanging there on the cross, there's a cry that rings out through all of history. So the first thing that we saw was a cloud of darkness, but now we have a lesson that we're going to learn from a cry of despair. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The audio. Just think about what he's saying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that scripture sound familiar to anyone? It should. If you look in your Bibles, uh, sometimes they have a little marking by specific verses, and these markings tell you where you can reference it in the Old Testament. And where you can reference this phrase is from Psalm 22. And you might want to turn there. It's, King David, the man after God's own heart, he's finding himself in a place where he's feeling abandoned by God. Now, this is hundreds of years. Check this out. This is written hundreds of years before the crucifixion. 
It's written hundreds of years before Jesus hangs on that cross. And verse chapter 22, verse 1 says, this is King David writing, the man after God's own heart, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? King David had moments in his life, the man after God's own heart, where he felt alone, where he felt that he was in a dark place. And what happened was what emanated from his soul, from his heart, cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But check this out. It's further on in the psalm. We're not going to read the whole thing. But look down at verse 16, where David writes it like this. He says, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and feet. Wait a second. They pierced my hands and feet? This is before crucifixion was a practice. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments. Wait a second. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Didn't we just talk about this? What the soldiers were doing? And do you see the crucifixion here hundreds of years prior? And yet a cry of despair that rings out through the ages from David that will be echoed by the greater David, the greater king, on a cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a great lesson in this, gang. The man after God's own heart had experienced that Jesus, the Son of God, was on the cross, and for the first time in all of existence, he was feeling not only the weight of mankind's sin, but he was feeling at that moment separation from his Father because he became sin who knew no sin on our behalf. That's the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He became a curse. He became an abomination to his own Father. So this priest, and this is the lesson that we learn, this is what you can hear in the dark, is this this is a sympathetic high priest. No matter how bad it's been for you, no matter how dark, no matter how lonely you felt, this is a God that says, listen, I've suffered this for you. No other religion can claim this. No other religion is based off of a God that came as a man, humbled himself, and then humiliated on a cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the lesson, man. Not only is he a sympathetic high priest, but he knows when you're feeling this. If anybody can relate to those feelings in your life where you felt alone or hurt or abandoned, it's Jesus. But here's what we hear in the dark. You ready for it? Because he went there, you can go there, but you don't have to stay there. Because he went there, you can go there. But you don't have to stay there. I'm going to be 100% transparent with you. Getting up to do this today was not easy. Two o'clock in the morning, my wife wakes me up. John, John, what's going on? said, you were calling for your mom. I just started sobbing. My pillow was soaking wet. Got back to sleep for a little while, but it was still there. It was still there. So I started writing a song to God. When I started writing that song to God, I was thinking about this very point. We do not mourn as those who do not have hope. So it's okay that we go there, but we never have to stay there because of what he did on the cross. Because there was a moment when Jesus Christ said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now what he's done is he's given his Holy Spirit to you so that when you're hurting, hurting, sometimes you can't even articulate it. So what's his Holy Spirit doing at that moment? It's groaning inside of you. He did that for you. There's hope in this passage, though it's the darkest moment in human history, because he went there, you don't have to stay there. I can cry out in despair, but I don't have to live there. Let's go back to our passage now. It's Mark 
15, verses 35, 36. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Oh, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come down and take him down. i stop right there. In the darkest moment of human history, not only do we see a cloud of darkness, not only do we learn from a cry of despair, but the other thing that we learn from is this, is the crowd's disdain. Can you imagine this? That they're not just sitting there watching him die. That would be horrific enough. But now they're kind of taunting him. Well, if he is who he said he is, let him come down from that cross. You're taunting a man that is hanging there, gasping for air, taking his last breaths. I mean, how far will human nature fall before God says, listen, I'm not done with this. And what do we learn from the crowd here? Well, from the crowd's disdain. This is the same type of crowd that was shouting a week before that, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's the God who saves us. The God who saves. What happened? Jesus had not met their expectations. He had not saved them their way. They were looking for a political leader to deliver them from Rome. And when he wasn't what they expected him to be, well, what they didn't understand, they tried to get rid of and extinguish. That which the world disagrees with and doesn't understand, it tries to ignore, discount, or destroy. Maybe you've seen this happen in our society when somebody tries to shine a light into something. Jesus came and he led a perfect life. What did he do that was worthy of this? Not only worthy of the humiliation, but now hanging on a cross, naked and ashamed, hanging there, they're sitting there and they're taunting him. They didn't understand. And sometimes what we don't understand, we disdain. And there's a great lesson in this. There are several subjects I didn't do well in in school. Geometry. Algebra. Calculus. Chemistry. Physics. I could go down the line. There were certain subjects that I simply did not do well in school. Now, because I didn't understand them, I hated going to the class. Now, because I hated going to the class, what I ended up doing was, rather than trying to pay attention, what I ended up doing was mocking and impersonating my teachers. So everybody could look to me during the Pledge of Allegiance because they know that I was going to stand up and impersonate the uh, the professor who, who talked kind of funny, and so I would impersonate him out of disdain. I was just sheer lashing out because I was so frustrated. And I also enjoyed the laugh, but that was beside the point. <laughs> Here's the thing. That which people don't understand and that which tries to shine a light into what they're doing Anybody that has a teenager knows this, all right? How many of you have ever tried to wake a teenager? How many of you have been that teenager that they tried to get out of bed and then they try to put the light on and it's like, <laughs> it's like, stop, right? And so that's kind of what, it's kind of like when you think of Christ, is that this darkest moment in human history, you see the disdain of the crowd. And what do we hear? What do we hear is this. It's something really simple. That when you, are more like Jesus, you might get treated like Jesus. And Jesus said something very interesting. He said to his disciples, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. Why is that? Because the world's desire is conformity. Because misery loves company. The world's desire is conformity because misery loves company. So the more you act like Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean that things are going to be easy for you. And the one that you can talk to about that is the guy that got knocked off his horse and blinded for three days, Saul of Tarsus. His life didn't necessarily got, get easier when he was knocked off the horse. Back to verse 37 of Mark chapter 15. 
So I think we're seeing some lessons here. So we're seeing this passage. We're kind of listening. We're perking our ears up. And there's some, there's, there's some good application here. Um, verse 37. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Stop right there. There. They killed him. They killed him. He came for this purpose. He came to die. He told Pilate something very interesting. He goes, you have no authority over me. Because Pilate said, listen, I can set you free. I can, you know, your, your destiny is in my hand. And Jesus says, you have no power except that which has been given to you by my Father in heaven. Understand this, is that what you see here, what you've just witnessed in this moment, verse 37, is not that Jesus has been made the victim. What you see here is a calculated decision. So that's our next lesson. It's from a calculated decision. Now, everybody that was watching it was saying the same thing. And everybody that was his disciple, at least, was saying, how? All he did was love them. All he did was teach them. All he did was heal them. All he did was resurrect them. All he did was calm the storms. This is so not right, and it's so not fair. But we have to understand this, is that the cross did not happen to Jesus. Jesus happened to the cross. This was not something that God was unaware of. It's not something that Jesus was unaware of, and we have proof for that. It's John 12, 27. You do not have to go there, because I'm just going to read a verse real quick. John 12, 27, it reads like this. It says, now my soul is troubled. This is Jesus towards the end of his ministry. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me for this hour. But for this purpose I came. For this hour. He also says in John 18, verse 37, he says it like this. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king? Then Jesus said, You say rightly that I am king. For this cause I was born. And for this cause, I have come into this world. Stop there. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. So this is a calculated decision. And when we are listening, what we hear is this, is that the calculated decision, what it means to us, the application for us, is that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. All right? And you were part of the equation. You were part of the equation. You're part of what factored into his decision to go to the cross. To save us. So it wasn't something that happened to see. Now, again, another application and a great way to think of this is like this. Because of his calculated decision, and please hear what I'm about to say, the whole thing. Because of his calculated decision, we don't live as victims. He knows everything that has happened to you, everything that is going to happen to you. Because of his calculated decision, we don't live as victims. Now, I want you to hear the whole thing because what I'm not saying is this, is that some of you have not been on the receiving end of the ugliness of life, treated wrongly by other people. We're not saying that at all. We're only saying that because of what happened to Jesus on the cross, we do not have to stay there with that mentality. Because Romans 8.37 says we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. So with whatever's happened to you, whatever it is that you've been through, we have a choice that's held in two tensions. We're either victims or we're more than conquerors. And church, church, you have a choice to make. We're either victims or we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Because you were part of this equation. You factored into his decision. He willingly went to the cross for you. And he's aware of every circumstance that you've gone through and every circumstance that you're in and all of these things he's working together for good. But he's aware of all of it. Every bit of it. So the cross was a calculated decision and whether or not you found yourself in tough circumstances because of choices you've made or simply because we're living in a fallen world, he is way aware of it. And because of his calculated decision, well, we don't have to live as victims.
We're going to go on in Mark 15. We're now in verse 38. It says, Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And all God's people said, Ruh-roh. Okay, the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, we don't necessarily know how thick it was. We don't know how thick it was. A lot of people suggest it was a hand, a hand's breadth. Some people would say that it was four inches, nine centimeters. However thick it was, it was thick enough to um, separate the ark from what was in the, the rest of the temple, that, that area that the ark should have been in. So it was that thick, but we do know that it was 30 feet high. And the important thing is this, is that it was ripped from top to bottom. And so the question arises, well, who could tear a veil like that? The dad of the one who turned the tables over at the temple. He can tear a veil like that. That's the one that tore it. All right? You think of Jesus' ministry. Everything he did turned their world upside down. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The Pharisees were listening to that teaching, and they were like, what? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. His teaching turned their world upside down. His power turned their world upside down. Everything that he did upended the establishment. And that's the fifth thing that we see. A corporate downfall. You see a corporate downfall because in that moment, everything that the religious religious leaders stood for was torn. No longer would people need the priest to have access to God. And so this is what we hear in the dark. All right? Through this moment where the veil is torn, what you hear is this. It's a message to the church. It's two words, access granted. Access granted. There is one God and one mediator between God and men. That is the man, Jesus Christ. Access has been granted so you can go to your God through Jesus anytime, anywhere, any place, about anything. Because what happened was when that veil was torn, the religious establishment went bye-bye. And Jesus said there's going to be a new way of doing things. This is really important because what happens even in the church today is this. How many of you have had people that have said, well, you know, I don't go to church because I don't necessarily like organized religion. That's why I love it when they come here because we're not all that organized. You know? (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) Organized religion. What happens is this through the ages, even in movements of the church. Even in movements of the church, that which starts in the spirit some, somehow has its way of reverting back to the things of the flesh. In every great movement of the church, you've seen this happen through the ages. Something that starts in the spirit reverts back to the things of the flesh and becomes, again, very, very religious. And so what happens at this moment is there's a corporate debacle. And now there's one sacrifice, one high priest, one mediator, which means that you and I have access to God. Now, sometimes we'll take a look at the church quite critically. I'm guilty of this, by the way. We can take a look at what's happening in the church quite critically. Now, we have to exercise discernment in what's happening in the church, but sometimes we can cross the line of discernment and we can go to criticism. And we're still criticizing the bride of Christ. It's still the bride of Christ. If there's blatantly false teaching, that's one thing. It should be called out. But we need to be very careful. Before you start talking about that, maybe sometimes what I'm finding is this, is that God's trying to upend some tables in my own life. And this then becomes a matter of trusting the Holy Spirit to help me get the plank out of mine. Have you ever read that passage about Jesus taking the plank out of your own eye uh, before you start to remove the speck in your brother's? Do you know how gross that is? 
I'm a nurse. I mean, if somebody had a plank in their eye, it would be disgusting. I mean, you think about this piece of wood lodged in your eye, right? It's, it's kind of a gross little analogy that Jesus gives when you think about it. But the fact of the matter is, is that when we take a look at the corporate downfall of the church, is that what we hear is that Jesus established complete access. Access has been granted to us. Verse 39. Actually, no. Verse, yeah, verse 39. So when the centurion, this is one of my favorite verses in all scripture. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. Here's why this verse is special to me. I'll just share it with you. Because as a kid, at 11 or 12 years old, I made mom and dad rush home from church Easter Sunday because a new movie station in town was playing the greatest story ever told. And it's an old movie about Jesus. And, um, and all week they had been advertising the greatest story ever told. And I'm thinking, well, with John Wayne, they said. John Wayne? All right, surely I'm thinking that John Wayne's playing Jesus. Well, bless her to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But then I started watching the movie as an 11 or 12-year-old, and I'm watching, and about a half an hour into the movie, I realized that he's not even John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So he's not John the Baptist, he's not Jesus, and they're like, the greatest story ever told, starring John Wayne. About two hours and 40 minutes into the movie, a Roman centurion stands at the top of a hill, and he does this. Truly, this man was the son of God. That's his only line in the movie. I watched two hours and 40 minutes, and you're like, you should have been watching it for Jesus in the first place. Rebuke me later. Uh, two hours and 40 minutes. But what we have is this. And you know what? And as I'm thinking about it even right now, the movie is kind of like indicative of what happens here. It takes them so long to realize, and all the events to unfold, to realize, truly this man was the son of God. It was the Roman soldiers that were sitting there uh, taunting him, mocking him, beating him, putting a purple robe on him, and, and hail, king of the Jews, and mockingly worshiping him. And finally, one soldier stands up after he sees the darkness, after he sees all of this unfold, he finally stands up confidently and says, truly this man was the son of God. And now what we learn from is a confident declaration. But what does it take to bring us to that confident declaration? A very dark moment. Most of you didn't find Jesus when things were going well. A lot of you found Jesus when things were not going well. Matter of fact, when things were downright awful and you finally said, mercy, and he said, okay. You came to Jesus when you didn't have much to offer. It wasn't like, okay, well, you know, John is a successful doctor. He's this, he's that, and now he's coming to me. And, wow, boy, does he have a lot to offer. No. I'm broke. I'm crushed spiritually, mentally, physically. Okay, God, I'm sorry. I have nothing to offer. He says, all I want is your heart. I prove that by the cross. So a confident, de confident declaration, what we hear in this dark time, the lesson for us is that sometimes it's only in the dark moments when people finally hear the truth and declare it. There's a great church figure named John Wesley. 1735, John and Charles Wesley were on their way to, the Ameri to America as, listen to this, they were on their way to America as Anglican missionaries. A group of Moravian immigrants from Germany were also on the ship. A terrible storm developed at sea, and they were in danger of being shipwrecked. The Moravians were in the midst of a worship service and praising God with much intensity. Wesley was terrified. Wesley recounts the event in his diary. In the midst of the psalm where their service began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks as if the great deep had already swallowed us up. This is what he writes in his journal. A terrible screaming began among the English. The Germans calmly sung. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but were not your women and children afraid? He replied mildly, no, 
Our women and children are not afraid to die. The storm was so boisterous, but the Moravians kept praising God. Finally, the storm subsided, and that's when John Wesley came to Jesus. That's when the missionary truly, fully turned his life over to Jesus in that dark moment. He was already a missionary. But you understand that sometimes you can have a title, sometimes you can, um, you can claim to be a Christian, the Bible tells us in Matthew 7 there are going to be many that stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that? He's going to say, I didn't know you. We see a confident declaration from a Roman soldier. And the last thing that we see is verse 40 to the end. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so this is the seventh thing that we see, and this is committed dedication. Committed dedication. What you see, it's the women that are there. Ladies, your role in the church cannot Cannot, I cannot emphasize the importance of how God uses the women in the church and now. What we'll see next week is that it's the ladies that were given the most important message and the most important meeting in all time with Jesus. And so often in the church today, undervalued, taken for granted, not poured into, neglected, this is really, really important because where were the guys? Where was Peter? Where was John? Where was James? Where was Jude? Well, we know where Judas was. But where were the guys? All right? Where were the guys? Where were the guys? The guys were all home with the covers pulled over their heads. And it was the women who, though they didn't understand exactly what had just happened, though they didn't understand it, they were there. They were still there. And what you see is committed dedication. What we hear is this. We see the committed dedication, but what we hear is this, is that in the dark, when we keep the faith, we're still available for the great things that God wants to do. These women are still there. They're still in the batter's box when the enemy is playing fast pitch because they understand this. They don't understand necessarily the, the full ramifications of how this has played out, but they trust God. They're trusting God, and they're still there. They most likely aren't sitting there saying, boy, he did that for me. Most likely they're saying there, boy, this is so unfair. They killed him, but we love him, and we don't understand what just happened. But maybe that sounds like you sometimes. I don't understand what he's doing in my life, but I love him. And I know that if he sent his son to die on a cross, I know that I'm not going anywhere. Committed dedication. There's a lot that we can hear from this passage about the darkest moment in human history. Especially to those that would look on and say, well, you know what? This God, the God of Christianity, I look at this world today and things are just not fair. I remember that there was an actor. I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Robert De Niro. When they asked him if he believed in God, and De Niro said, well, if there's a God, there's some things he's going to have to answer for. To you? Why? Because of your Academy Award? I don't think so. Listen. There's an illustration. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on the vast plain before God's throne. Some shrank back from the brilliant light before them, but many other groups talked heatedly not cringing with shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a perp brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beating, torture, death. In another group, a young African-American boy lowered his collar. What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault. 
for out across the plain were thousands of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for all the evil and suffering he had permitted in this world. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all was sweetness and light, where there was no weeping and fear, no hunger or hatred, no sickness or sorrow. What did God know of all that humankind had been forced to endure in this world? After all, God leads a rather sheltered sort of life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth a leader, especially chosen because they had suffered the most. A Jew, an African American, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, an AIDS victim. In the center of the vast plain, these leaders consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case, item by item, leader by leader, to God. It was rather pertinent. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a human being, as a man. Let him be born of the most despised race, a Jew, in poverty-stricken conditions. Let the legitimacy of his birth be contested. As a child, let him be forced to flee as a refugee and live several years in a foreign country. Then give him a work to do and an ideal to uphold that is so difficult that even his own family will think that he's out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest colleague into the hands of those who hate him. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly, terribly alone, forsaken by all his friends. Let him be tortured, then let him die. Let him die the most excruciating and humiliating death possible before a taunting, reviling crowd that not only verified his death, but contributed to it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the whole assembled throng. When the last leader had finished pronouncing his part of God's sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered another word. Nobody moved. For suddenly, when they saw Jesus, everybody knew that God had already served his sentence. So what does this mean to your dark place? He's been there. We're going to show you a video right now. Um, and I can't shut the lights off in the room. Here's the thing, when you want the dark moments in this room, you can't necessarily have them. Um, <laughs> oh, this will be what heaven is like. There. Okay, how about the application there? All right, so we've got a little video for you uh, for a little bit more application, and then we're going to close. 